This episode of Accelerate is brought to you in part by Discover.org. Looking to close four times as many deals in half the time? Discover.org's industry-leading human-verified sales intelligence gives you all of the data and insights like direct dials, org charts, planned projects, verified emails, and executive moves. You need to stop wasting time on research and spend more time talking to the right decision maker with the right message at the right time. Their team of 250-plus sales researchers do all the work so that you don't have to. 2,500 companies are already using Discover.org to win more deals. So check them out at www.discoverorg.com. That's www.discoverorg.com. It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 591, 591 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Joining me as my guest today is Christopher Lockhead. Christopher is the host of the Legends and Losers podcast. He's a retired Silicon Valley executive and co-author of the book, a very interesting book as a matter of fact, Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. And so in this episode, we're going we're to talk about what it means to be a category king, you know, some a company that dominates your segment, and then follow that by talking about what this means for salespeople. In short, can you ever really achieve your career goals and rake in the money you want to earn if you aren't actually selling for the category king? And if you aren't selling for a category king, what should you do? So if you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 591. Before I bring Christopher on, let me remind you that today's show is brought to you in part by our friends at Discover.org. The Discover.org platform is a game changer for sales, marketing, and staffing professionals. This feature-rich sales intelligence platform is supported by 250-plus researchers who continually update contact data and provide account-specific insights to help sales and marketing teams break ahead of the pack. See the product live at discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. That's discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. Okay, let's jump into it with Christopher Lockhead. Christopher, welcome to Accelerate. Andy, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So open the show with a standard question for all my guests. And the standard question is, in your mind, what's, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today? The number one challenge facing salespeople today is understanding, is the company they're working at going to be the category king in their market category or not? And if it's not? Quit and go find a category king. <laughs> no, no, really. But the, I know, the but sec- that's right. The but- second we know that the company we work for is not going to be the category king, we need to get the F out. Or second in the category. No, right? no, no. Really? Jack, Jack's wrong. He might have been right back then, Jack Welsh, when he sure. said we need to be one or two. Right. Here's the data. So for our book, Play Bigger, we built a big data store of every venture-backed technology company founded from 2000 to 2015. Right. And amongst the data that we tracked, Andy, was uh, their financing rounds and um, uh, how their valuation slash market caps changed over time. Now, you know, I'm a former CMO. My uh, co-authors, um, uh, two out of the three of them are also former CMOs. You might expect we'd measure market share. And market share is important. What we wanted to understand is what percentage of total value created, that is to say market cap or uh, um, 
uh, yeah, market cap for public, publicly traded companies, mm-hmm. valuations for mm-hmm. private companies. But what percent of total value created in any given market category goes to the leader or the company that you could think of as the category king? So we analyzed that. And here's the aha. 76%. And in technology, it can be even more dramatic. Facebook has no competitor. Um, and so uh, uh, Microsoft Office has no competitor. And so we live in winner-take-all markets. And salespeople are in selling, at least in part, to make money. And there's only one way to make real money, which is to work at the category king. All right, so let's let's take a step back. Let's let's talk about your book. It's titled "Play Bigger: How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets." So, and yeah, the whole thesis around this idea of a category king. So, define a category king. Well, a category king is the company that designs and dominates the market category, conditions the world to think about a problem and therefore a solution with a uh, with a provocative point of view and as a result teaches the world to think the way they think as a result of that they become positioned as the first they become positioned as a pioneer and um, those companies go on to dominate the economics in their category so pepsi will never catch coke ever Microsoft spent $10 billion on their search engine, Bing. And the only thing that's happened to Google in the search business is their market share's gone up. And as a company, their market cap's gone up. Mm-hmm. $10 billion. So what I tell you is companies that make the decision to enter existing markets with a we're better than them strategy and that fight or, if you will, compete are losers. The companies that win, that's not what Henry Ford did. That's not what Sarah Blakely did. And that's not what Steve Jobs did. They're the companies that taught the world to think differently about a problem and therefore a solution. And what they're really doing, and this is why it matters so much for salespeople. Number one, one company takes two thirds of the economics. You want to be with that company because that's the company that pays the best. And if you have equity in that company, that equity is going to be worth a lot more. And A players want to be on A playing teams, want to be on championship teams, right? Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, if you're one of the rats on the (laughs) Titanic fighting for scraps as you're going down, okay, you um, you have to go to market. You experience no pull whatsoever. So the category king experiences tremendous pull because once the world agrees with the category king about the problem, pa-pow, it demands the solution and it pulls it out of the company. And so as a salesperson, if you're at the category king, you are in a demand-rich environment. That's where you want to be well, as I- opposed to fighting for scraps because you'll be one of many companies fighting for essentially a quarter of the economics. Yeah, I mean, and I think the key point for people to understand here is is that you said the the category kings define the category; they define the problem. In that sense, that's right. I mean, they that's frame right. they frame the problem in a way that forces people to think about it in the same way. That's right. Now, as a salesperson, in the spirit of full disclosure, if you're going to work for an early stage category king, that is to say, uh, 
you know, a startup or a company that's, you know, maybe not quite public yet or somewhere, you know, a little bit earlier in its life. And you're um, wanting to be the company that designs the category so that you can position yourself to dominate it. Here's the truth. In the beginning, as a salesperson, you have to be a lot smarter than the average salesperson. And here's why. You're out there evangelizing a new category. By definition, there's no line item in, in your prospect's budget for this new carbodingulator that you're evangelizing because mm-hmm. they've, they've never heard of carbodingulators before, right? Right. By definition. However, you have to be able to meet the category where it is and then take it forward. So a great simple example of this is Henry Ford was a master of doing this. Um, do, you, do you know, Andy, what he called his innovation when he first launched it? Uh, no, I just remember the, the, <laughs> the famous saying where he was sort of disdaining market research because he said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have told me they wanted faster horses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so what he did when he approached the market with his new thing is if he'd shown up and said, ta-da, the automobile, the world would have said, what is that? A, is that a native word? I don't know. Is that what did you just say to me? Right. We, we had no we'd never heard that word before. So what he what he did do is he said, I want to introduce you to the world's first horseless carriage. Carriage, Right. And so that's an example of meeting the category where it is and then pulling it forward into the the definition uh, or, the, if you will, the design that you want. And in particular, the thinking of design that you want. And all of a sudden you go, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. What if you could have a carriage without a horse? And the, the minute the world begins to think about that and that the horse is actually maybe a problem – all of a sudden, there's a solution. And so, two, two points. A, legendary salespeople work for category kings. B, to be a legendary salesperson at a category king, you have to be able to take the category that you're evangelizing that by definition doesn't exist in the prospect or customer's uh, current spending mm-hmm. and go in and show them how to move from where they are to where you want them to be and and meet them and meet them where they can understand you a la horseless carriage and here's what i know andy in my life the salespeople who've had the most legendary careers that's where they live oh i agree I agree. I mean, I, I'm not legendary, but I've, I've worked in that environment and succeeded in that environment because I think from a salesperson standpoint, that is the most fun, rewarding place you can be. I mean, it's the hardest in some respects, but, you know, there are no rules at that point. It's just what can you do to make that happen? And what I can tell you, having uh, been on that team multiple times and having not been on that team multiple times... Mm-hmm. The value of being on the category winning team is worth more than anything else. I would rather wash jock straps on that team than be, you know, the uh, the cleanup hitter. Yeah, well, I mean, just think about it. From I, I think about it, I did at that time from a, a career perspective. It was like, yeah, there was no roadmap for the career. I didn't care. I just wanted to be there. Right. I mean, if I knew that if I went in, did a good job, and I worked at a company, we, you know, startup competing against the gorillas that were doing things the wrong way, and and you know we were doing things the right way. Hey, 
you know, it, that was, I love that tilting at that and, uh, relying on a set, my sort of broader set of skills to be able to, let's just said, evangelize this particular category that we we're selling. And I think there's nothing more uh, fun and fulfilling as a salesperson. And, uh, <clears throat> as the company grows and becomes the category king and you begin to experience that pull and, you know, you, ha- you have a company that's got you know, very meaningful amount of revenue and bookings. It's still growing at, uh, you know, triple digits, um, and, and competitors are being laid to waste and, uh, you know, it's pretty fun. Yeah. So, I mean, what you gave the example of Ford, but in, in more contemporary times, what, what examples can you give of this sort of in the non-tech space? And we're familiar with Uber and what, you know, tech enabled solution and uh, Facebook you referred to, you know, Apple, the iPhone, we, you know, Apple takes what, 90% percent plus of the profits out of the the cell phone business um any non-tech examples yeah lots of non-tech examples uh companies of all size and, and persuasion one of my favorite examples is um is and i mentioned her briefly earlier is sarah blakely um the founder of shapewear or the founder of Spanx. Spanx, right she did not make the mistake of um leaving her position, or that is to say her category design, to chance. She did what every legendary innovator has always done who becomes a category king. She told the world how to think about a problem and a solution. And so what she did specifically is she didn't call it a girdle 2.0 or any of that. She called it shapewear. And everything she did with the product, with the company, with the brand, with the packaging with the pricing, all of that was meaningfully different than what came before. And so, Andy, she was very purposeful about being, and I'm going to use this word on purpose, different as opposed to better. Because when you're different, you get to be the person who's designing the rules for this new space. And here's the really cool part. Legends do not want to be compared to others. They want others to be compared to them. And so when Sarah says, not Girdle 2.0, shapewear, all of a sudden she doesn't get compared to all those things that come before. People look at her with a fresh set of eyes and she gets to design the rules of the game, what the price point should be, what the value should be, um, and, and how in particular she wants people to think about a problem and a solution. And when you're successful at that, Bam, you get shapewear. Bam, you get five-hour energy, which is a twenty, oh, which is a two billion dollar category now, dominated by one company. <laughs> which is Basically. which is amazing. I think about those two billion dollars, those little little right? Uh, bottles, right? Yeah. Based on one aha, which is just because I'm tired doesn't mean I'm thirsty. That's a two billion dollar aha right there. So and th- I, this is a good example, and you talk about this in the book in, in a fair amount of depth. So what you're saying is, is uh, and I forget the gentleman's, gentleman's name that, that came up with this. Manoj, uh, and I will, bat, I will butcher his last name, but his first name is definitely Manoj. Okay, is that what he's saying is, yeah, you just need this. You don't need a whole Red Bull or whatever it is, a can of that. You just need this, you know, two ounces or whatever. That's right. And here's the genius. He doesn't let the world put it in the bucket that they would put it in. He puts it in a new bucket that he creates. He doesn't call it a drink. 
He calls it a shot. It's an energy shot, and he distinguishes everything about it. Obviously, the packaging is highly distinguished, and they become the first company in history to have five SKUs at the Walmart checkout. Well, and that was the, I thought was the genius part, is the fact that set it up in such a way that it was available for sale at the point of purchase. Right. Absolute genius, 7-Eleven. I mean, you know, we see them all over the place, right? And so uh, categories can, new categories can be designed or existing categories can be redesigned. The point being, the company that's doing that, that's the company that's going to roll all the economics in your category. And if that's not you, if that's not your company, quit. (laughs) No, quit. And not like, not... Oh, I'll think about it and maybe I'll, I'll start in January somewhere else. No, tomorrow's promised no one quit. Every day you're with a loser, you're a loser. Quit. If you think about it, look, less than 1% of venture-backed tech companies are ever successful. Mm-hmm. So the odds uh, against those of us in tech and those of us, fa- frankly, in any entrepreneurial business, we know what the stats are. They're terrifying. And frankly, guess what? My buddy, um, Ray Wong, in his book, Disrupting Digital Business, analyzes the Fortune 500. Well, guess what? Over the last decade, 52% of them are gone. Right. (laughs) Right? And so there's no safe place to stand. No. And the only safe place to stand is to at least be going for it, if you'll allow me, playing bigger insofar as you are purposely trying to be the company that gets three things right, not two things right, which is company product and category. So you're evangelizing a unique, distinctive place, a niche, if you will, that you can design and own. You're delivering the product that uh, that delivers against the problem that you position in your category design with your point of view. And then you build a legendary company with a legendary sales organization, a great business model, a great distribution capability, a great ecosystem around it. And ba-boom, when you get all three of those things right, you get to be either you know Facebook or the category designers of the um, uh, motorcycle leather jacket, Scott Leather in New York City. Mm-hmm. But in either case, both companies are category kings. Well, and one of the key points I like in the book, as you talk about, is that you know the, the power of a category is that it simplifies everything. You know, from a sales standpoint, that is Wait, that is gold. That's right. Look, nobody does an RFP to figure out which office suite to buy. We just buy Microsoft Office. Yeah. Nobody nobody hires a consultant to do a bake-off, <laughs> right? We Not just anymore. go out and buy Office. Right. Right? That's the power of a category king. Microsoft has over 90% share in that space, in spite of the fact that Google offers a great product for free. Right. The power of a category king is sustaining. As long as the world agrees with the category king about the problem, they'll continue to buy the solution. And it's only when the, the problem definition shifts that the solution definition shifts. And that's how that that's what kills companies. And the problem with companies at that point, I, I was at a company that arguably was a category king. This wasn't a huge category, but category king. And they got complacent. Well, and when you say they got complacent, what most people, I think here when you say that, is they got complacent and so they didn't product innovate because all of us went out and read Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma. And what Clayton told us is we have to keep innovating with our products. Well, Clayton's right, but Clayton missed a whole giant part of this. 
which is products don't live in space. They live in categories. And said in a more simple way, Andy, people only buy solutions when they have problems. And so Clayton. <laughs> what, a, what a shock. Yeah. Clayton Christensen is actually wrong insofar as he's, he's, he's bringing you to the wrong conclusion. And here's my evidence for it. In 1999, Dell Computer Corporation sold laptops, servers, storage, and professional services. And Michael Dell was on the cover of every magazine. Mm-hmm. And, and they, you, you couldn't have a hotter company. Today, they're, they're a dying company. Michael Dell couldn't get on the cover of any magazine. And they sell laptops, storage, servers, and, 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 um, and professional services. So what happened? They didn't stop innovating. They sell, their laptops are awesome. Their servers are awesome. Their storage capabilities are awesome. Nobody buys that stuff anymore. There was category violence. So in the storage market, it shifted to virtualization. Mm-hmm. In the server market, it shifted to the cloud. Right. And so when you hear this conversation about innovation, most people think product innovation. It's actually category innovation. People reimagining the problem, and therefore they are now open to a new solution. And in hindsight, these things all look very obvious. But in any given moment, you know, they don't look so obvious. I love the term category violence. That's really what's going on. When Netflix shows up and says, stop driving to the theater or to the rental store just to discover they don't have what you want anyways, go to a website, tell us what you want, and it'll show up in your mailbox. Everybody goes, oh, that's great. And, and, and it's then they, a fallacy. And then they, right, and then they said, stop walking to your mailbox. Yeah, well, exactly. Once, once, once Wi-Fi and internet distribution of you know massive data, and so <clears throat> the point being, though, Reed Hastings did not compete with the dumb. I'll just call them people <laughs> at at Blockbuster. He moved the category. He inflicted category violence. He redefined the problem called how do I get the movies and entertainment that I want at my house. He redefined that problem, and when they, when he did that. Blockbuster literally goes bankrupt. That's not competing. Most people, when they think about competing, they think about a better conversation. Where, let me, if their five-minute abs were four-minute abs, if their four-minute abs were three-minute abs, and it's a race to the bottom, Category Kings don't do that. Category Kings position themselves as distinctive and force everybody else to be compared to them. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I, I'm thinking of examples and so on. Um, well, it's interesting. Category design, Andy, is a new lens. And if you start to play with the lens, you see it everywhere. And you see people make category decisions over brand decisions. So, uh, for example, you drive by a, you know, a local medical center in your neighborhood, and you'll likely see a sign that says, in big font, dentist, and in small font, Andy Paul DDS underneath that. Right. That's because that entrepreneur the dentist intuitively understood that categories make brands. In other words, if the sign just said Andy, well, Andy as a brand in the absence of context, that is to say a category, I don't know what that means. So why would I pull in and go visit Andy? I don't I have no way of relating to what that is. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so they intuitively understood that when understand when you put the word dentist up, oh, now I know what category of service provider Andy is. And that's a really simple and powerful example. And you just look at people's LinkedIn profiles. Well, here's what I love about people's LinkedIn profiles. Well, first of all, the first thing I love about them is the vast majority of them I see are written in the third person. Well, guess what, people? We know you freaking wrote it because we wrote our own too. So it's asinine to me that they're written in the third person. <laughs> Write them in the first person. We know you wrote it, but I, but I digress. Most salespeople, most entrepreneurs, most innovators have forgotten that when you're in the drill business, you sell drills. That's what you think you do. You market drills. Customers are in the business of buying holes. Mm-hmm. And yet we have drill conversations. And so I always love it when you read people's LinkedIn profiles, because it's just like a list of features. It slices and it dices and it mows the lawn and it cuts its hair and it trims its toenails and it, okay, great. So what, what problem do you solve? What makes you different? So I want to talk about one example that, that you have in the book and it's certainly near and dear to sales audience because, you know, a clear category king is salesforce.com. And, you know, no denying the incredible job Benioff has done in building that company. And you said they've, they've sucked all the profit out of the sector. But the things that are happening in the CRM sector these days is there's all these new enterprises that are emerging. Uh, and I just wonder, okay, well, what are they seeing? I mean, because I would think that, you know, people would stop. But I've, you know, I've had no shortage of CEOs on the show, these, some of these newer ventures that are... Yeah, taking aim at some segment of what Salesforce serves. Yeah, so I love this conversation. So if I could back up, you said Benioff's done a great job, quote, building the company. And I would agree with you. He's done a legendary job building the company. And that's only a third of what he's done. Okay. And the category design made the company not the other way around. Right. Cloud-based solution. And, well, yeah. So if you go back to 1999, right, and you say, okay, so here's how this is going to go. We want you to give us all your data about who your salespeople are, who all their prospects are, who all their customers are. stored on our computers. And, and your forecast, and it's going to run on our computers. And oh, by the way, you don't own anything. You're just renting it. Right. Well, the response in 1999 and I don't want to talk about your age, so I'll talk about mine. I, I know because I was there. Was go f yourself, right? It was laughable, right? It was absolutely laughable. And so, uh, what Benioff did was he prosecuted the magic triangle in a way that few others in the history of business have, which is he got product, company, and category right, and then he evangelized all of that with a legendary point of view. And of course, the rest is history. He now owns an island in Hawaii. And so that's really the thinking. What, what does it take to create a new set of thinking about a problem and a solution that moves either an existing market like he did in CRM or a brand new market um, uh, like the energy shot exactly around uh, coalesces that market around exactly what you want. So that's, that's what he did. Now, if you get to all these new ankle biters. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm an investor in one of them called Spiro. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's been, Adam's, Adam's been on the show. 
Awesome. Well, Adam and I are old friends. And, um, Adam Hornick, for people listening, you can go go find my uh, interview with him. I'll try to find the episode number before we get Spiro. off Spiro.ai. And I love the company because Adam and the team at Spiro, in my opinion, have reimagined um, sales technology. And I can explain to you why if you care. Sure. Audience okay. cares. Okay. So um, – the problem is defined originally with Salesforce automation, and I grew up in this industry. As a matter of fact, last night, I was at a an event. I spoke at an event with my dear old friend, Bruce Cleveland, and Bruce was one of the co-founders of Siebel Systems. Mm-hmm. And Bruce, when I was 27, 28 years old, uh, destroyed my uh, net worth and self-worth at the same time when Siebel became the category king, and we got crushed. At, at, I was at a company called Vantive. And then, of course... Years later, Benioff did the same thing to Siebel, right? So anyway, getting getting to today, um, here's why I love it. The problem that Salesforce automation slash CRM is supposed to solve from a salesperson perspective is essentially one of tracking leads, funnel, uh, and coordinating tasks and activities around that and reporting forecast back up to management. That's really what it does. And that hasn't changed for a very, very long time. And I know there's a lot of other side shit and you know this and that and the other, but for the most part, that's what it does. Well, here's the giant from two, or as we call in the book, mm-hmm. Frodo, that's going on in software, and therefore it's going to uh, have a huge uh, benefit, of course, in selling. In the enterprise software world, we are moving from apps that we do things for to apps that do things for us. And so in the case of Spiro, they have built an app that does a lot for us and we have to do very little for it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it talks to us and it tells us what we need to do next. And it reminds us to send this email. And most of what we do in terms of interacting with it is, 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 is a, is a set of taps and, and very few other things. And so it is this new class of application. that's a proactive application that is, that is bringing things to us to say, okay, send so-and-so this email, call this person, don't forget about that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, these kind of proactive applications are starting to show up all over the enterprise. You know, we're starting to see things in, you know, a whole bunch of parts of the enterprise where people say, well, why do I have to go dig around in, into my intranet? You know, we're seeing this in training by way of example, or we're seeing this with corporate policies, like who's going to go read the corporate intranet? When we have a question, we want to be able to deal with it really powerfully, and we want technology to go tell us the answer, right? And so essentially what you see going on with um, with Alexa and products like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen next in enterprise technology, whether you talk to the app or type or however you input. But it's that same kind of dynamic where you ask the technology to go get you something or go do something for you, and it does it. That's the new era that we're entering. That's why I think Spiro is so cool. And Frankly, that's why I'm very excited about the future of enterprise technology or enterprise applications overall right now, because I think there is a very big Frodo that's going to take place. And and we're about to see the death of the first generation cloud applications. And these are the second generation, typically mobile first, um, uh, big cloud applications that we're going to see that are purpose built around AI and machine learning and, and things like that and big data stores, et cetera, things that were not around um, for the first wave uh, cloud applications. And that's very cool. And so to get back to your question, Andy, I think what's really going on is 
you have a set of vendors, Spiro and many others in different parts of CRM and different parts of enterprise applications overall, who are trying to pick their place where they can use these new modern mobile first uh, AI machine learning powered, uh, big data powered, et cetera, applications that do things for us. And uh, it's not clear that they're going to be able to unseat um, uh, Benioff and Siebel, uh, excuse me, Benioff and Salesforce. But um, history would suggest that um, the category king is in some jeopardy right here. Um, however, Mark Benioff has proven to be one of the smartest guys. <laughs> yeah. And cool. so uh, he's been able to embrace this new stuff as it's come along and pull it into his world. And so, uh, and, and they've been very, very strategic, Andy, with acquisitions. I mean, they are an incredible, to get back to your point, he's done a great job building the company. He really has. And so, you know, the, you could build an argument that says uh, Salesforce will benefit from all the things I just said uh, much more than than be vanquished by it. But um, that's, well, what, that's, what, yeah, that's but, what makes our industry fun, right? Well, it is. And it seems like one of the things that happens with some of these smaller players is, is and tell me if this is a possibility, is, is based on, on your vision of the, the categories, that they can create new categories that are admittedly are smaller, at least initially, but that begin to sort of chip away at the big category, the that uh, Salesforce is currently the king of. That's right. I mean, uh, and again, I'm biased here because I'm, I'm currently on a speaking tour with them, so full disclosure. But if you look at what my friends NetSuite did, mm -hmm. SAP is one of the largest software companies in the world, the absolute, no question about it, category king in ERP, enterprise resource planning. And the cloud becomes evident because Benioff's doing it. And, and so... Um, here comes NetSuite. Well, <laughs> they, they built NetSuite right under SAP's nose. It wasn't like a giant secret. Right. And, and now they've got that, you know, mid-tier growth company space, if you will. Because, you know, they, I think they do have some Fortune 500s, but they're typically in that um, mid-sized kind of high growth kind of company space, right? And uh, they, have that, they have that category locked up. And so even though there's a giant category king in ERP in the Fortune 500, Here's the problem with the Fortune 500, Andy. There's 500 of them, <laughs> right? And even if you say Global 2000, or even if you say Global 4000, so uh, anyway, my point is NetSuite, right anyway. under their nose, dominates this giant category because of the shift to the cloud and because of their focus on a different segment of buyers, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, it's it's remarkable that that SAP let that happen right under their nose. So. Is it possible that that could happen to Benioff and Salesforce? Sure, but man, I'm not I'm not ready to bet against them. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, perfect. All right, well, Christopher, we've run out of time. It's been a fabulous conversation. So, um, tell folks how they can find out more about you and connect with you. The best way to find me is at legendsandlosers.com. Legendsandlosers.com. So that's your podcast, right? Yeah, and uh, you know you'll you can find me if you want to connect with me on any other social platforms or any of that stuff. All of my info hangs off of uh, legendsandlosers.com. And is that spelled out, or is that the ampersand in between? You know, I don't, I don't think you could do an ampersand. Oh, that's so true. That's ours true. is definitely that's spelled true. out. Legend, if you Legend could do an ampersand, that's, that's a new thing. I would have yeah, loved to have true. done that, but um, you're right. No, I think about that. Yeah, yep, it's a and d. A and d. Okay, good. Well, Christopher, again, thanks for spending this time with us, friends. Thank you for spending this time with me today. Uh, make sure you come back and join us for our next episode of Accelerate. So until then, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>